the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Firing Line with Philip Naiman. The Firing Line radio show is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside, CCW Safe, Cutting Edge Bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, The Force of Optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. And now your host, Philip Naiman. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Good morning. This is Rick Travis, the Director of Development for the California Rifle Pistol Association. Welcoming all the firing line listeners in as Phil Neiman is out this week. But this has been an incredible week as we look at the Second Amendment, the Supreme Court of the United States, and the person that is being considered to sit in that seat vacated recently by the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that would be ACB, or better known as Amy Coney Barrett. Today with me is Chuck Michelle, one of the finest Second Amendment attorneys in the country. And we're going to break down every aspect of what this means, what it means to be an originalist, what it means for the Second Amendment, both now and in the future, if she is confirmed by the Senate, and why it's so important for us to watch what goes on in the nation's highest court. Chuck, welcome to the firing line. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So, Chuck, you know, over and over, over the past few days this week, I have seen article after article either saying, oh, my God, she's an originalist, or yay, she's an originalist. But when I talk to people, nobody seems to really know what that is. I do, but let's talk about what it means to be an originalist. Sure. Well, uh, uh, you know, there's basically... Two approaches to the to interpreting the Constitution. There's the originalist approach, which basically follows the tries to follow the intention of the founders, the drafters, the the, the founding fathers who wrote uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And then there's the progressive view, which is that the Constitution is a living document and can be reinterpreted, and uh, uh, the language can be reinterpreted and read expansively to uh, include things that were not contemplated at the time of the founding or the time of the drafting of the Constitution, and then ad- adjusted or adapted to suit modern times, which is a, another way of saying you can read the Constitution uh, in a way that, that that was never intended. So the originalists are just more loyal to the original intent of the founders and the drafters of the, of the document. Okay, but and they do you know, that. I hear, okay, but I hear people say, Chuck, kind of in reply to that, is basically an originalist is somebody that walks around with a bracelet that says, "What would James Madison do?" Is that true? Well, kinda, no, 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 because this, see, this is. This is where they confuse originalists with conservatives. Uh, you're not necessarily going to win every conservative cause by adopting an originalist approach to, the, to interpreting the Constitution. 
uh, so, you know, what they're really going after uh, Judge Barrett for is her conservatism, uh, because the originalism is not necessarily conservative, but often it is. But it, for for our purposes, for the Second Amendment purposes, and, and and asserting the Second Amendment as a fundamental right and a protection against government overreach in regulating or banning firearms, what the way this weighs into our uh, litigation is is by its effect on what standard of review a court is going to apply when it's evaluating the constitutionality of a gun control law. Okay, and one of the things that I'm hearing along with this, in fact, it was right out the gate when we started these confirmation hearings, of course, is the Heller and McDonald decisions. But a lot of what I'm seeing on social media is people saying, well, we won in Heller and McDonald. What happened? Why, why doesn't it apply today? That's a good question, and one that I constantly ask. It doesn't apply. It, it does apply, but it's not being uh, uh, applied with, uh, uh, in, a, in the way that the court intended when it passed Heller and McDonald, uh, because courts don't like the Heller ruling. Remember, the Heller ruling from 2008 said that confirmed what we've known for years, uh, that the Second Amendment protects a fundamental individual right as opposed to a collective right of the states to form militia groups. Uh, so uh, that had been an argument that had been going on for a long time uh, and was finally settled by the Heller decision. Now, as part of the Heller decision, there was an effort by the liberal faction of that court to push a wa- for a watered-down standard of review some kind of intermediate scrutiny, which is basically a balancing test, very subjective, and it enables uh, courts to basically influence the process uh, and let their bias creep into decisions. And so if they are biased in favor of the government being able to regulate guns, then a judge can put his finger on the scales very easily with intermediate scrutiny or, and that some kind of a balancing test where you balance the infringement on an individual right against the government interest in public safety and say, does this law uh, advance the government's interest and does it unreasonably or, 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 or unconstitutionally go too far in infringing on individual rights? Well, that, that, has been, that, that, was, that argument was expressly rejected by the majority in the Heller case. That, that what's the appropriate standard of review discussion took place in Heller. Uh, and so uh, what the courts did that, that didn't want to have a strong Second Amendment with teeth that actually meant some laws got stricken down, what the courts did was just call it something else. Uh, so they, they call it, uh, you know, a two-step uh, process uh, determining whether or not the law at issue affects the fundamental right at all in the first place and then if it does what standard of review applies is it rational basis intermediate scrutiny strict scrutiny i mean they basically concocted this rube goldberg kind of you know mousetrap game uh test that can be influenced at any step of the way you know and for example uh some courts went so far when we filed challenges to uh, laws that prohibited or heavily regulated license, licensing of, of guns in public, being carried in public. Some courts went so far to say that 
carrying guns in public, i.e. bearing arms, but they didn't call it bearing arms uh, because that would have stepped into the right to bear arms. So they call it carrying arms in public is not part of the uh, Second Amendment right because the Heller case only addressed guns in the home. So the core Second Amendment right is just to have a gun in your house, and anything that regulates anything other than that is not protected because it's outside the scope of the right. So they basically tried to make the Second Amendment a homebound right. You only have the right to have a gun in your own home. Well, that's complete baloney and uh, has been pretty much rejected, although some Ninth Circuit judges are still clinging to that um, as they try to water down the Second Amendment and avoid the, the, the approach that that's Justice Scalia and Roberts were both advocating at the Heller hearing. And remember, McDonald really didn't expand on that. McDonald was a limited question. The McDonald case in 2010, two years after Heller, just decided whether or not the Second Amendment uh, applied to limit the right, to limit the ability of state and local governments to infringe on the Second Amendment. So we've been left with, since 2008 and 2010, the Heller and McDonald decisions, and they should have been read. If they were read, frankly, uh, honestly, you know, uh, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation where we are right now, where we have to get a third decision to clarify what the standard of review is. But we knew after McDonald came down that the next test was going to be the next question that needed to be answered by the Supreme Court was, how do you apply that standard of review to determine whether or not a law is constitutional or not. So we have just over a minute left in this first segment. Chuck, why has it been over a decade since we've heard such a case? I think a lot of the judges, a certain contingent of the court was uh, nervous. First, it was Kennedy. Who, you know, we, we've had we've had a lot of. Uh, cases that made their way to the Supreme Court and were not accepted. Remember, it takes four votes to take one, five votes to win one. And Justice Kennedy was just not voting to take the cases for whatever reason. He was a a little ambivalent about, he voted for Heller and McDonald, but he was ambivalent about giving us a Second Amendment with teeth. So they didn't accept any of those cases. Then when he dropped off, uh, Justice Roberts basically became, I think, the, the, the one who was nervous. And that's why the appointment of Judge Barrett is so important because even with Justice Roberts as a as the weak link with her, we should have five strong uh, advocates for and believers in the Second Amendment and, and that, that, the, that the Second Amendment means what it says and that second, that governments can't just pass stuff and expect the courts to defer to their their uh, uh, reasoning. They're going to have to prove that claiming is true if they want the law to survive a constitutional challenge. And folks, just before we break, this is why I always emphasize when I'm on the show with Phil Naiman, your vote counts. Your vote from the local level. Those local people end up going up the food chain to becoming congressmen, senators, and even the president of the United States, which decide who the judges are. They give you your freedoms or water them down till we lose them completely. We'll be back with Chuck Michelle to talk more about Amy Coney Barrett and the Supreme Court nomination. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. See this? This is my boomstick. Hey, folks, Philip Naiman. Welcome back to Boomstick Radio here. 
Every week, you know, on the Firing Line Radio Show, our conversation's going to revolve around firearms, hunting, gun rights, all the great stuff afforded to all Americans under the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Now, our faithful companion in the battle to uphold these rights has been longtime sponsor Vince Torres of Bullseye Sports Guns and Ammos in Riverside. Now, if you're not armed for protection or recreation, well, shame on you. Why aren't you? Get out there. Buy some stuff. Head on over to Bullseye Sport in Riverside, where you need to go for small arms, rifles, shotguns, big arms, ammo, accessories, and much more. After you purchase that firearm, Vince and I highly recommend you attend a certified firearm safety and training course, one that's going to teach you the basic knowledge, skills, attitudes essential to safe and efficient use of your firearm. For more information about their courses, head on over to Bullseye Sport in Riverside or call them at 951-823-0211. 951-823-0211. Visit the website bullseyesport.com for a schedule of classes because they believe in safety first. 951-823-0211. This is Rick Travis. Director of Development with the California Rifle Pistol Association, filling in for the wonderful Phil Naiman here on Firing Line Radio. Today, we're talking about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court of the United States with Chuck Michelle, one of the finest Second Amendment lawyers and president of the California Rifle Pistol Association. Chuck, in the last segment, we were talking about two different things I think a lot of people are still trying to get their heads around. The scrutiny tests, whether it be intermediate or strict versus originalism. And I know the CRPA has two, what are potentially landmark cases that may proceed to the Supreme Court of the United States here in the next year or so. One of those is Duncan, which to the viewers and and listeners means more about, you know, magazines and being able to get a standard capacity magazine. The other one is Rhodey dealing with the draconian Prop 63 infested ammo. Um, Everything that has just made it impossible to get ammo has made it just horrific to try to go through the process. A lot of the new gun owners have complained about it since uh, COVID started up and they've been going out and buying their firearms. Can you explain to us in either one of those cases what the difference would be between having an originals judge and some of, for example, the weaker judges we've had on the Ninth Circuit that go to the scrutiny test? Sure. Well, first of all, don't forget we have there's there's a lot more than two cases that CRPA right. is litigating, and there's another real uh, uh, significant one that was just argued orally by Sean Brady, a lawyer with my office, one of my partners, uh, and and it's looking quite good that that three judge panel. Remember, you have a trial court judge, one judge who uh, applies the determines what the facts are and applies the law and renders a judgment. That judgment then can be appealed to the Ninth Circuit. It goes first to a three-judge panel. That three-judge panel is typically the end of the process. But depending on how controversial or significant the issue, the legal issue at, uh, at stake is, and there's not supposed to be factual issues re- resolved once you get out of the trial court. It's just all supposed to be the legal issues and whether or not the law is applied uh, correctly. Uh, so usually the three-judge panel is the end of the process, but if the uh, issue is significant enough, the court, the entire court, and there's, I think, 29 judges on there now, um, can vote to take a case on bonk, which means they take it, 11 judges sit all as a panel and rehear the three-judge panels. Basically, it's an appeal of the appeal uh, uh, to from a three-judge panel to an 11-judge panel. So we have... Uh, a lot of our cases are making their way to the on banc panel. They're trying. Duncan is uh, the, the case that struck down the 
uh, possession, the, the law banning the importation and possession of magazines that can hold over 10 rounds. The attorney general has asked for en banc review. We're opposing that. Uh, uh, so, but the, the, basically that, and Roop was just argued before the three judge panel and it's a, it, it was a favorable hearing, uh, all of which shows not just that, you know, the judge Barrett is a, is the greatest and most high profile and latest and most high profile example of what a difference a judicial philosophy can make. But in the Ninth Circuit, that used to be known as the the progressive haven. Ninth Circuit has always been the most overturned circuit in the country when it comes to appeals to the Supreme Court. But now President Trump has appointed a, a lot of appellate court judges uh, in the Ninth Circuit and other circuits. And so the dynamics have changed. The numbers have changed. The odds of getting a a good panel have changed, and we got a good panel with two uh, uh, conservative justices on the Roop case. So I, we may very well uh, see a ruling that strikes down uh, the uh, black rifle ban in California as as uh, an unconstitutional infringement. But to get to your question, and forgive me for for digressing, but the the, the originalist test. Uh, they have to try and determine what did the founders mean or what did the drafter of the law mean when they first put it out. And to try and do that, they typically look at first at the text of the law itself. What does it actually say? What do those words mean? And then they look at the history uh, and tradition uh, involved at the time when this was passed. Why did they pass it? What problem were they trying to address? Basically, it's kind of a question of legislative intent, although not exactly. and and part of that test involves looking at what laws existed at the time, what things, what kind of laws were tolerated at the time. And so this has now become a new debate, a new uh, uh, fight in Second Amendment scholarship. Uh, what laws were uh, tolerated uh, back when the Bill of Rights was first enacted? What gun control laws? And so there's this whole uh, body of scholarship now emerging, funded by Bloomberg, to try and claim that all kinds of gun control laws, all kinds of laws banning public carry and uh, banning certain types of firearms and banning firearms from a lot of specific places and banning certain people from possessing firearms. There was all these laws that existed throughout history, you know, all of which, none of which is really accurate and none of which really reflects the intention of the founders when they passed this law. Uh, So we're going to have to figure out what, shall not be infringed, what does infringed mean, and what kind of laws were tolerated as not being infringements at the time that the law was passed, uh, and what kind of problem were they trying to solve. But the conventional wisdom, sort of the the consensus is that if you apply an originalist test, most of the laws that exist now uh, did not exist years ago and would not be tolerated by the founders. Uh, particularly when you look at some of the motivations of the drafters of these laws and realize that this is really, they don't have good empirical evidence to demonstrate that, you know, an assault weapon law stops, a so-called assault weapon law stops uh, crimes. Uh, None of these laws really work. And the government, if the government is actually held to its burden of proving that when it infringes on our rights, it has to prove that the laws they pass actually do something. There has to be a legitimate government interest advanced. Unless the government can do that, the law should be struck down. 
and they don't have that kind of empirical evidence to back up these laws. They just made it up, and a lot of it was emotional as they passed these things, and some of it was, frankly, vindictive, uh, designed to try and, in the words of Gavin Newsom, uh, eradicate the gun culture. He doesn't want people thinking favorably about guns or, or thinking that guns have value as a self-defense tool or for sport. He wants to eliminate those options, which is why he's trying to shut down gun shows and gun stores and gun ranges and do everything he can to make it impossible to choose to own a gun uh, uh, or participate in the, shooting, in the shooting sports and learn how much fun they are. So the, the originalism test will be more faithful to the intent of the founders, the intent of the founders, and it will hold the government to its scrutiny. And when that happens, many more gun laws are going to be struck down. And that was exemplified by that recent Duncan appellate court decision. Okay, so is this decision, if we were able to, to get one, will it open up other potential lawsuits for the Second Amendment if we get this third decision? Well, uh, the the reasoning that was used in Duncan, we're already using it in other cases. I mean, lately, just because the issue there was magazines, possession and importation of magazines, doesn't mean that the reasoning that they applied to say that that was unconstitutional is limited to magazines. Uh, when they that when they say the government has to prove it has that the law actually does something when they when they say the government has to prove that whatever it is they're trying to ban does not have self defense value, uh, you know that applies to the ammunition law that we're challenging in Rody too, or the assault the so called assault weapon law that we're challenging in Roop. The government has to prove that the law that they're they have the burden of proof and they have to prove that the law that they're trying to defend actually has some value. And I, I really I had to laugh at some of the arguments the government was making. When we were, when the oral argument took place on the group case, they were arguing that you don't need an accurate gun for self-defense. Seriously. Uh, so they want to ban assault weapons because they're too accurate. They're too accurate. And they're arguing you don't need, a, 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 which is analogous to the argument they made in Duncan on a magazine. They're saying you don't need more than 10 rounds to defend yourself. And okay, we're going to come back to this in just a moment. Thank you for being on Firing Line Radio, and we'll be back with Chef Michelle to talk more about the stupidity of some of the things being argued in the courts and the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Have questions about handgun safety, local sports shooting events, or your Second Amendment rights? Just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Get practical advice. No sales pitch. Vince is a straight shooter when it comes to sharing his advice and years of gun experience. Whether you're a seasoned gun owner or a newcomer, at Bullseye Sport, they welcome everyone, especially ladies considering a firearm for the first time. When they go to our store, we want to give them something that they're going to feel comfortable with. And if you're looking to purchase a gun, ammo, or accessories... If we don't have it, we will get it for you. For all the answers to your rifle and handgun questions, just ask Vince at Bullseye Sport. 951-823-0211. Bullseye Sport in Riverside. Proud sponsor of the Firing Line Gun Show, Saturdays at 1 p.m. on AM 590. Follow Bullseye Sport on Facebook for your inventory updates or call 951-823-0211. AM 590, the answer. 
This portion of the firing line is brought to you by CCW Safe by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. Spartans, lay down your weapons. Persians, come and get them. Welcome back. This is Rick Travis with Firing Line Radio. I'm the Director of Development for the California Rifle Pistol Association, filling in for the amazing Phil Naiman, who is out most likely doing a survey of wildlife. And talking with me today on Justice Barrett and her nomination to the Supreme Court and what that means for the Second Amendment is Chuck Michelle, president of the California Rifle Pistol Association, more importantly, the man who's been defending your rights as one of the greatest Second Amendment attorneys for decades. Chuck, you and I were just talking about some of the things that are said in recent lawsuits, and one of them that I just find ironic, and I want to highlight it, is for any of us that have ever been involved with carrying a concealed uh, weapon with a CCW or defending our homes or contemplating what that would look like, realize that we do not want an inaccurate firearm, and we don't want to be outnumbered. And given the fact, you know, my son, as you know, is a police detective, and he tells me all the time that most of these home invasions are three to five people, they're obviously criminals. They're not following the laws. They have standard capacity magazines carrying multiple rounds. Why do you think judges have pushed so hard for people to have, you know, 10 rounds or less in an inaccurate firearm? It makes absolutely no sense to me. No, it doesn't. It's part of Well, the, the, the judges aren't pushing for the inaccurate firearms. That's the California Department of Justice and Attorney General Becerra's office that's, that's arguing, making that ridiculous argument. Uh, but it's what it's it, it, from the government's perspective. What they're arguing is that the government will protect you, essentially, that you have to rely on the government. They want to limit your right and ability to defend yourself and your family because they're saying they, they think that the collateral consequences of having people have that power uh, make it harder to govern. So they want to basically limit that as much as they can. And force you to rely on the police, which now, ironically, they want to defund. But this is a philosophical, foundational, philosophical, basic difference between an approach to life, an approach to how you live your life, what kind of you make in living your life, uh, that goes beyond guns, it goes into their whole approach to, to government. You know, you just brought up an excellent point, and, and I want to talk about this, you know, this idea that you know, the government is right there in your back pocket, which we all know is a blatant lie, but more importantly, that they're looking out for your best interest. And one of the things that has come up in this nomination, obviously in all nominations, we look at a candidate's previous um, decisions or dissenting opinions. And there is one that has come up called Cantor v. Barr that happened back, I believe, in 2019 in the Seventh District Court, uh, where Amy Coney Barrett was the one who wrote the dissent opinion. Let's talk about why that's so important, because I just found it amazing where she she drew the lines. And so can we explore that a little bit and the whole idea of law over ideology and what that well, that that's, that's a perfect example of what we were talking about, the approach to evaluating the constitutionality of a gun control law. In that case, the law that was being challenged by Mr. Cantor was a ban, his a ban on him possess a lifetime ban on him possessing firearms because he, because he had a uh, a nonviolent felony conviction. Uh, I forget what it was. I think it was some kind of paperwork 
uh, like a fraud. It was a fraud. It was a fraud case that had to deal with some minor issue that he he misrepresented something dealing with Medicare. Right. But there was never any evidence that he was a physically a, a danger to anybody or would, would likely be. And there was every indication that he had rehabilitated himself and he had led a, 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 a you know, a, a, a good life and a clean life and been involved in society. And but the court uh, said that uh, it's not unconstitutional to deprive him. It's not a Second Amendment violation to deprive him of his rights to own a gun for life based on that one felony conviction. And Judge Barrett, sitting on that court, dissented and said, and and significantly, the reason she dissented was she said the court is applying the wrong approach to this. What we should be looking at is whether or not this law can be justified as applied to Mr. Barrett because he is legitimately some kind of a future threat. Or is this law overbroad and thereby, thereby a Second Amendment violation? Because it condemns him and deprives him of his right to keep and bear arms for life because of something that doesn't really justify that harsh of a deprivation. And she wanted to use the originalist approach. Look at the text, history, and tradition of how the uh, Second Amendment was applied to, to certain people uh, in, throughout history and, and determine whether or not the founders really intended for someone like Mr. Cantor to never be able to be able to be condemned and never own a gun again. And she said that there wasn't, it didn't appear that that was the case that this, in this particular instance, Mr. Cantor should have been able to get his gun rights back. So the, the significance of that, and that, and that's by the way, the case that she cited as the one she was sort of most proud of, uh, of all her decisions, uh, uh, so that, that illustrate that tells you where she's coming from. She's coming right. from the originalist approach. She's applying that the appropriate, the appropriate test. And she's saying the government doesn't get a free pass. We don't defer to the government and whatever kind of baloney claims it's making. Like, you know, you don't need an accurate gun for self-defense, uh, when it's trying to justify, justify some flimsy, come up some flimsy, uh, justification for a gun control law. So, so that illustrates where she, that tells you where she's coming from and where she's coming from is very promising for second amendment, uh, uh, uh activists. So a question that I heard raised over, you know, the entire week is I believe and correct me if I'm wrong, but she's going to be at least in recent memory, the first non quote Ivy league, um, Supreme court justice, if approved, is that true? Because I heard like I most people come cool. from you know, Yale and Harvard and places like that, and she comes from I, Notre Dame. Uh, well, okay, I guess um, I guess Notre Dame isn't Ivy League. <laughs> well, uh, that's according to the East Coast people. Huh? I'm not yeah, saying. Yeah, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, I I, I I I suppose literally it's not, and maybe that's true. I, I, but yeah, I know a lot of them come from Harvard, Harvard or, or Yale historically. But if you go back further, not everybody had that kind of pedigree on the Supreme Court. And, uh, hey, Notre Dame, <laughs> I don't think I could have got into Notre Dame. So uh, <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to falter for that diploma. So as we're we're moving forward, I know one of the things that we're all talking about is the future of the Second Amendment. So let's spend the last of, of this segment and our, our final segment talking about what our Supreme Court could look like for the Second Amendment 
if Justice Barrett is confirmed by the Senate, which it looks like it's going to go down party lines at this point. None of us have the crystal ball. But if that was to happen, what do you see happening as far as Second Amendment lawsuits? Because there's a lot of them throughout the country. And we're just trying to figure out, you know, what is this going to look like? Well, your the court, the composition of the court will then be, uh, you know, we've always had four. We never were sure if we had Roberts when we all, and we always knew we didn't have the other liberal four. Uh, and one of those was Ginsburg. And now with Ginsburg gone, there will be, there should be uh, five solid originalist conservative judge, judges who are inclined to uphold the Second Amendment. We know that four of them uh, already are very much inclined to and are chomping at the bit to take a Second Amendment case and set this straight. Because some of these justices recognize that the, that the lower courts have been thumbing their noses at the Supreme Court's ruling in Heller, rulings in Heller and McDonald, and, uh, and they don't appreciate it. And especially Justice Thomas. I mean, he's flat out uh, mad at some of these lower courts. So uh, I remember it takes four votes to take a case, five votes to win one. If you only have four votes and you don't think you have the fifth vote, then the four votes don't vote to take the case because they don't want to take it and lose it. But now with Justice Barrett on there, uh, you'll have that fifth vote even without Roberts. And you might get six if you pull Roberts in. Um, so they're more likely to take a Second Amendment case for review because it's discretionary. They don't have to review any case. And they typically reject, you know, 99% of the cases that ask them to to uh, uh, hear their case. Uh, so it means more cases will – it means a it means a case, whether more cases or not. It means at least a case that, that should set the record straight for all the courts below across the country and, and tell folks – to tell the lower courts that they've been doing it wrong uh, should should be taken. Now, what case that is, we don't know. It could very well be Duncan or Rody or Roop or one of CRPA's other Second Amendment lawsuits that becomes the vehicle by which the Supreme Court uh, sets a record straight on what the appropriate standard of review is when you're evaluating the constitutionality of a gun control law. There are other cases across the country. Some good, some bad. Frankly, all the major ones were wiped out last last session. Uh, there was ten cases, Second Amendment cases, pending in the Supreme Court, and certiorari got denied in all ten of those. Uh, so all ten of those cases are dead. Now there are some other cases that that mostly. This is what's kind of frustrating sometimes. Let's hold there for a second. Let's just hold on that thought for a second, folks. We'll be right back with our final segment. This is Rick Travis with California Rifle Pistol Association interviewing Chuck Michelle over Amy Coney Barrett, the Second Amendment, and the Supreme Court. Hi, folks. Philip Naiman from Firing Line Radio Show. If you're a concealed handgun carrier or have a firearm to defend your home and are forced to use your weapon for self-defense or the protection of a loved one, you'll be glad to have CCW Safe on your side. CCW Safe provides and pays 100% upfront defense funds for high-quality attorneys, expert witnesses, and the investigators you need following a critical incident with no reimbursement. And they do it all for one flat yearly fee starting at $179 a year. 
CCW Safe has permit and non-permit plans to protect California residents in this state and while traveling across the country. So check out their new ultimate plan with no caps on criminal and civil defense, $1 million for bond coverage, a dedicated million dollars for civil liability, and many other benefits. You defend your life. CCW Safe will defend your freedom and financial future. In California, CCW Safe has got you covered. So join now at ccwsafe.com. AM 590, the answer. This portion of the firing line is brought to you by Vortex Optics. Vortex, the force of optics. Bonham, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. Hey, folks, Rick Travis with the California Rifle Pistol Association filling in for Phil Naiman who is your normally wonderfully never upset host, and that was sarcasm at its best. Today I'm here with Chuck Michelle, president of the California Rifle Pistol Association, as well as being the attorney that has represented all of you for years, whether you knew it or not, to defend your Second Amendment rights, both here in California and across the nation. We're talking about the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, or as we like to call her, ACB, to the Supreme Court of the United States, And in this last segment, we're going to talk to you about what it takes to get a case from start, which is in the lowest courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I think most of you are going to find this very interesting. Chuck has done this for years. I've been doing it for almost a decade from the sidelines, helping him out. And so we're going to talk about this because it's one of the most misunderstood things within the Second Amendment community. So Chuck... Pick a case. We can pick any of them that you want to. But let's roll this back and look what it takes to get the case going and how much it costs. Because I'm always amazed that most people think that these are like $25,000, $50,000 endeavors. No, there's really no such thing as a Supreme Court case that only costs $50,000 to take to bring all the way. First, let me say, though, I think I may need to ask your producers for copies of those sound, those introductory sound bites, because I think I might want to weave those together and turn it into my law firm's hold music. I love those <laughs> those things. Anyway, uh, so uh, a lot of folks don't understand this, and that includes lawyers. They think that they can, uh, you know, there was a, one lawyer trying to raise $5,000 to file a, a, a Second Amendment lawsuit. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? I mean, your, your printing costs, your filing fees are more than that. Uh, so they, they, they completely underestimate what it takes to do these cases, uh, just to do them basically, and then even worse, to do them competently. The reality is you need quite a bit of funding, and not just funding, you need, you need a brain trust. This is not stuff that you can mail in. You know, there were so many poor cases. Uh, filed after Heller came down, poorly prepared, poorly litigated. It kind of opened the door for the co- the lower courts to find a way to deny them. A lot of them have made bad precedent, which we're now in the process of trying to overturn uh, and, and and get straightened out by the Supreme Court. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you start in the trial court. You file your complaint. Typically, the state is going to move to dismiss the complaint. So before you get even that's the pleading stage where you file your pleading and then there's litigation about whether or not the pleading is sufficient, whether or not you've stated a case. Uh, And if you get through that and that stage can take months. Uh, And then one of the things that sometimes happen at that stage 
is people will file for an injunction, and we do that sometimes. <laughs> but typically, <laughs> it's more difficult to get an injunction, and it ha- those cases have to be chosen carefully. And the downside of this is some guys have taken an injunction denial, and rather than continue to litigate the case and set the facts straight to take up on appeal, they then appeal the injunction. And that's almost, in most cases, that's, that's, it's much harder to win an appeal on an injunction than it is to win an appeal on a judgment. Remember, what you're trying to do ultimately is get a judgment out of the trial court. So you go through that pleading stage, go back and forth about uh, whether or not you've sufficiently alleged a, comp- a cause of action and illegality. Then you get into discovery, uh, trying to s- determine what the facts are, who has what evidence that a gun control law does or does not do what the government says it does. There's expert testimony. Your experts are very, very expensive. They have to file reports to have depositions taken. Depositions can take, you know, depos- each dep- deposition can be a, a, a five or ten or more thousand dollar exercise. And depending on how many experts there are or witnesses there are, you know, multiply that by the cost of the deposition. You get through uh, discovery. Now you're in motion practice again uh, for a motion for judgment, uh, for summary judgment or partial summary judgment or uh, whatever you know, suppress or strike an expert. And there's all these different uh, uh, motions that can be filed pre-trial, pre-trial motions. Then you're getting into uh, the, the, the final uh, preparation for a trial where facts and law will be applied by a judge and or a jury. And that can go, you know, for months as the court tries to, as you try and get the court to rule out, uh, to rule on some of the preliminary issues before you actually get into the trial. And then you're in a trial. And that trial can be very, very time-consuming, very, very fact and law-intensive. A lot of, of, uh, of litigating on the fly, and, and you know, things happen at the last minute in trial. No matter how much you try and prepare, and it takes a lot to prepare. Uh, and then you get some kind of a ruling that the, uh, from your trial or from one of your motions that get, gets converted into a judgment. And once you have that judgment. That can be taken up on appeal, but it typically takes a couple of years. Okay, so let's hold on. Let's trial. hold on just for a second there. Just to that point, takes time, as you just stated, months, sometimes a couple of years, and takes a lot of money just to get there. And we haven't even got to the Circuit Court of Appeals yet. Correct. And depending on how many factual issues there are, that's what can really drag you into this quagmire of of time. And the time is what costs the money. But, I mean, we've all heard these stories about how, you know, legal fees on a case can be millions of dollars just getting through trial. Uh, That's uh, what I wanted to bring up with about, you know, four minutes left in this. I really want to hammer home to everybody just to get to the trial can cost millions, not 50,000, not 100,000, millions. And then we go to the appellate court. So in a more abbreviated form, once we get to the, the Ninth Circuit, can that cost just as much, if not more? Typically, that doesn't cost a million, but it can cost, depending on how intense the motions get and the briefing gets, it can cost easily exceed six figures. 
And then once you get to the Supreme Court, I mean, just your printing is $15,000 to get the briefs printed. And, it, you know, do you want your lawyers to prepare for this? To, to, to get ready to, to take a case to the Supreme Court, Stephen Hallbrook, one of the best Second Amendment litigators, said that he devoted three months of his, of his practice. For three months, he prepared for, for his Supreme Court oral argument. That's, you know, that's not including the briefs. That's getting ready because these cases can go sideways. There can be some random tangential issue that comes up. And if you don't know how to handle it, uh, it can tank your case, which is why you really want a Supreme Court litigator, not just somebody who thought that he thought he saw an issue. And so he did a case on a budget and tried to be a hero and get into the show. You know, every lawyer wants to go to the Supreme Court. But not every lawyer has any right or ability to. So you want to hire a lawyer who can handle all the contingencies once you're there. And they're not cheap. So it typically doesn't cost a million. I don't want people to think it costs a million dollars to do a trial court Second Amendment case. We haven't charged that much on any of cases we've done. But right. by the time you get to the Supreme Court with all the different law firms coming through there, it can easily be a seven-figure exercise. That's the point I wanted to make is these aren't cheap. So I want to let people know that you can't hire a backyard attorney to try to do these cases. You need to find somebody that has that experience. But at every step of the way, folks, you have to have the people that are the best at the trial level, best at the appeals level, and then best at the Supreme Court. Because any mistake along the way sets up the precedence that you hear during nomination process like this that can, as Chuck has used this word over and over, tank the very thing that you're trying to correct and improve for everybody. And the higher up you go, the more people are affected by those decisions or lack of those decisions in your favor. Right. So that a lot of dangerous lawyers out there that are unqualified to take these cases or don't have the resources. By the way, I do want to make sure folks know my firm charges the CRPA and all nonprofit Second Amendment advocacy groups that we represent. We charge way below market rates. Nobody's getting rich at this. If I wanted to get rich, I would have kept representing Exxon that I had as a client when I worked at Melbourne and Myers many, many years ago. Uh, this is not all about the money for us. We believe in the cause. We're activists as well as advocates. And we give the, the CRPA every break that we can. But it still costs money no matter how you do it. And that's where I'm going to finish this episode, folks. I know a lot of times people get upset because I'm always talking about money. But this is where it's at. Right now, we have the opportunity to turn things around. If Justice Barrett is confirmed to the Supreme Court, it looks very good for all of us. And this could get us our rights back and could make it so I didn't have to ask for as much money in the future. So help us out now by giving to the CRPA at crpa.org. You can go on the website. You can donate anytime that you want to. But help us out with these litigation cases. Because, believe me, the opposition has millions of dollars being poured in by the likes of Soros and Bloomberg all the time. And as Chuck said, he does give the best rates, and he is one of the most competent attorneys. He's been ranked over and over, as well as other attorneys in his law offices, like Sean Brady that he brought up earlier. Folks, this fight is ours. Watch it, and whatever you do, pray for Amy Coney Barrett to become the next Supreme Court Justice. Amen. Shoot, Felipe! Shoot! When you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk. The Firing Line Radio Show has been brought to you by Bullseye Sports in Riverside. CCW Safe. 
cutting-edge bullets, Vortex Optics, Vortex, the force of optics, and by Philip Naiman and Cornerstone Christian Wealth Management. AM 590, the answer.